one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. And welcome everybody to, you're not hearing anything wrong, another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. It has been quite a while, but we are glad that you are still sticking with us here. And uh, you're going to notice a few little changes as we go along through episode 1501, recorded for the week of Monday, April 3rd, 2023. I am Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me as always is the man behind this show, Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Great to reboot this thing, Sawyer, and I'm glad we have the band back together tonight. This is going to be fun. Absolutely. Also, once again, joining us is Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. Good to be here. Good to have you with us. And returning as well from down under is Dr. Kat Robinson. How's it going? It's going well. Good. Good on this sunny Sunday morning. Yes, it's all things upside down there. Of uh, <laughs> We are recording at night. You're recording in the morning the next day. Yes. And we do have a new person that will be working with us. He is currently behind the scenes for this episode, but we expect him to be on air soon. And that is Larry Heron. We'll introduce him more later. Uh, but for now, let's get into our topics for this one. So you'll notice things may be a little bit different. You can probably already tell by the runtime that things are a little bit shorter. So let's start with some rapid fire news roundups here. Uh, and let's begin with uh, one of the major changes going on at uh, NASA. And that is a name you've heard us talk about many times before. And that is Kathy Leaders. And uh, she will no longer be leading her role at NASA as the Associate Administrator for Space Ops. Right, Gene? Yeah, that's correct, Sawyer. She announced her retirement is effective on May 1st. Uh, she has had a, a very long and illustrious career with, with NASA. Uh, her replacement will be uh, Ken Bowersox, who is a currently the, uh, the Deputy Associate Administrator for Space Operations. Uh, he will take the helm uh, also on May 1st. And uh, I think uh, they're in great hands, but uh, uh, Kathy Leaders has just been a, a tremendous leader, no pun intended, in um, at NASA. I mean, if, if it weren't for, for her, I don't think commercial crew would have gone as well as it did. Um, I, I think she has had just such tremendous insight into a lot of things, and she's going to be dearly missed. In fact, another former... Um, associate administrator had the following words for, for her on Twitter. Quote, I have learned much and enjoyed working with Kathy Leaders while at NASA. Most importantly, I've been impressed by her deep technical knowledge throughout her long career and her strong decision making. 
and her kindness and support as a friend. There would be no Europa Clipper without Kathy. We would have less ISS research without her, uh, much less science data to ground, and I actually doubt there would be any commercial crew program which has changed how we go to space and will surely result in um, much science impact. Best of luck for what's next. And that was another former associate administrator, Dr. Thomas Zerbuchen. Exactly. We wish her the best of luck moving forward. Now, we have a couple of companies here that are dealing with some issues at the moment. Uh, we will start with Virgin Orbit. Uh, in case you're unaware, they recently had a launch overseas, their first one near the UK, uh, which unfortunately failed. And that was the start of a spiral that ended at the point that, as of now, Virgin Orbit is on the verge of bankruptcy, where it was originally valued at nearly $4 billion on the stock market and is now less than $100 million as of today. Uh, Gene, you might go into a little more detail on why they're going down so fast. Indeed, uh, a, an investor by the name of Matthew Brown held the keys uh, to Virgin Orbit's fate. And unfortunately, he decided not to invest in the company. And it kind of just, you know, decomposed from there. Um, CEO Dan Hart told uh, employees uh, during an all-hands meeting that, they will cease operations for the foreseeable future. Um, they were not able to secure the funding to uh, provide a clear path for the for the company. Um, basically, saying that we have no other choice but to implement immediate and dramatic, extremely painful changes. And according to an article by uh, Michael Sheets in um, on CNBC, Hart basically was audibly choking up on the call. So this was really an emotional impact. Um, darn shame too. They started out very, very strong, but I think a, a whole series of things just occurred and it just was not, not going to be, uh, not going to, the company was just not going to advance. Exactly. So that's something we'll have to keep an eye on to see if they can get any of that last minute funding. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about, about a hundred, you know, everybody, but save a hundred people in the company are, are, are staying. And, and that's that's sad. And I believe, according to the to the uh, sheets piece on CNBC, they were um, six hundred and seventy five positions that were that were gone or approximately eighty five percent of the company. Not good. Exactly. Now, another uh, program that's kind of been struggling, but at least still has the funding is the Starliner program. That is Boeing's capsule that was part of the commercial crew program to send astronauts to the International Space Station. They had originally said that the goal was to launch it sometime in April, so this month, then maybe May. Now they are targeting at least no earlier than July 21st. Part of that has to do with the busy time currently at the International Space Station with uh, Axiom 2 scheduled to go up in May as of now. Uh, In addition to other issues with a very busy cadence down at the Cape and their focus on trying to get Vulcan going as well. Yeah, I believe a, a NASA press release said about uh, 10% of the certification I- items uh, required for the flight flight test needed to be finished before um, July 31st, too. So that also might be a bit of a hang-up. Yeah, it just keeps getting delayed and delayed, but we've already paid for it. So looking forward to seeing it finally fly. Yeah, it, we, we need this thing to fly in plain English, and uh, uh, we need two 
basically two spacecraft that can get us to the low Earth orbit. Redundancy. Indeed. All right. Uh, speaking of the International Space Station, we recently had the Soyuz MS-22 capsule return with all zero of its original astronauts on board. It came back empty after Roscosmos claims that it was hit by a micrometeoroid while in orbit, causing a coolant leak. While it did make it back successfully to the ground, it uh, did experience extremely high heating temperatures, according to Roscosmos, that would have been survivable, but definitely uncomfortable. Meanwhile, the MS-23 spacecraft is up there that will return that crew home. Yeah, if I remember exactly, they recorded uh, uh, temperatures inside the capsule at 50 degrees centigrade, which I think Sawyer is about 130 uh, Fahrenheit. It would have been extraordinarily uncomfortable, but, you know, the crew might have been able to, you know, survive and, and come down. But, uh, you know, you don't want to take a chance with that. Exactly. When you're talking about people's lives, definitely not worth the risk. Mm-hmm. Also interesting of note that there is still the uh, uncrewed capsule that went up there that wasn't meant to carry crew that had a very similar leak. So the question of the whole micrometeorite damage itself is also was it micrometeorite? Was it a manufacturing defect? Of course, Russia's not going to say anything about that. Nope, not at all. And uh, an important vehicle at the Kennedy Space Center has now set a Guinness World Record, and that is Crawler Transporter 2, which started back at the Apollo era, continuing all the way up now to SLS. Uh, it is now the world record holder for the heaviest self-powered vehicle. Right, Mark? You betcha. Of course, I got to wonder, uh, being a government employee, I wonder if it has a government license plate and if you have to have a, uh, a valid driver's license. But I think the skill level to operate the CT2 is much higher. Yeah, I uh, verified this. I just looked at the GuinnessWorldRecords.com website, and lo and behold, there's CT2. And they mentioned something that I'd kind of forgotten about. This is a movie star as well as a, a world record for the heaviest vehicle. It's been in Apollo 11, Apollo 13, and Transformers Dark Side of the Moon, those three movies. And uh, I think it's extraordinary. I was on it. I won't tell that whole story, but my impression when it was being uh, modified for the Artemis program, I felt like I was on a battleship. It was gray. Everything was big. Everything was heavy. And it was very, very impressive. Of course, people that have been near it on a uh, on a bus for visitor center tours you know you get a pretty pretty big impression on how extraordinary that vehicle is and uh, it does a job nothing else can do so congratulations nasa congratulations especially the people that decades ago created this Exactly. And it's still fun that the high speed you're talking about a half mile an hour and its fuel consumption is measured in gallons per mile instead of miles per gallon. A little fun thing. So I'm glad they recognized it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is your news roundup for this episode. Now we will continue on with some topics that we found very interesting throughout the week, and uh, we'll each have our own little bit here. So let's start it off with Kat Robinson, who is in Australia at the moment, and there's actually some big news with the Australian Space Agency, right? Yeah, there sure is. So we're going to um, start this uh, first second off. It's a bit of a, a redo, but this is the Australian News Roundup. Uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is um, Australia is sending its first 
female astronaut to train under the Australian flag. So not only um, is she going to go and train, but she happens to also be the director of space technology for the Australian Space Agency. Her name is Catherine Vanell Pegg, and uh, she is based here in Adelaide. And she initially applied to ESA's astronaut as a private citizen um, of the United Kingdom because she has dual citizenship. Um, and what has happened is it has um, come that she will be only um, the third international partner of ESA to have someone who's not a member state of ESA uh, to have someone train and complete the basic astronaut training um, that's required in order to accept missions on board the International Space Station with ESA. Um, but she will train under the Australian flag. So that is making history as she will be the first astronaut to train under the Australian flag. There have been other Australian astronauts that have flown, but none have flown under, um, and I should say other Australian citizen astronauts, not Australian astronauts flying under the astronaut flag. Um, so she will soon start her training alongside ESA's astronaut, uh, newest astronaut class. Although um, as she is training under the Australian flag, she will not be a member of that ESA astronaut class. She will be standing on her own as the Australian astronaut. And so it's really exciting. She said that um, she is really happy to be the first, but doesn't want to be the last. So she uh, leaves soon to undertake her 12 months of training, and then she will be eligible to fly missions on the International Space Station after that. And of course, it's something very exciting to have to have that happen and to have someone who lives locally here uh, where I am in Adelaide to then uh, be doing that training. And then hopefully we'll see her flying on a mission in the not too distant future, which I think also dovetails nicely into my next point uh, is that we had a high level visit to Australia from NASA. We had both uh, NASA Administrator Senator Bell Nelson and Associate Administrator uh, Pam Merroy come and visit um, Australia. So they went to Canberra, which is the capital um, territory of Australia, as well as coming here to Adelaide. Um, those in the know may know that um, Pam Merroy actually spent quite a lot of time here in Adelaide. So this has been somewhat of a second home for her. Um, but one of the things that, that NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said was that we need, uh, he would hope to see Australia send astronauts um, to fly with NASA and um, fly NASA missions from Australia. And so that was really exciting to, to have that news um, for, for us here down under and to see, um, you know, Australia making steps forward. Speaking of steps forward, uh, another exciting uh, announcement from the visit from the administrators to to here was that they have launched a new internship program um, together with NASA. So the Australian Space Agency, working with the National Indigenous Space Academy, which is based at Monash University in Melbourne, will be sending um, interns to NASA to JPL. So the program will send um, five uh, Indigenous students. So that would be our uh, First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students here in Australia. Uh, undergraduates and postgraduates will be eligible. They will get to go first to Monash to do sort of a space academy to prepare them for their internships. Um, and then they will be able to go over to JPL where they'll be assigned uh, science or engineering mentors and getting to undertake that international internship. And it's really great um, 
you know, for us here in Australia to see the support for our Indigenous STEM students so they get to go over there. Um, and then, of course, some of the things that were announced during that visit was uh, the announcement of the Trailblazer Grant. So these are grants, um, investment from the Australian government into Australian space companies. Um, so they've got two in particular that are working directly with NASA and the NASA uh, Moon to Mars Initiative. Um, so those went to the AROSE Consortium and the EPE and Lunar ALS Post Oceana Consortium. And they each received $4 million as part of the stage one of the Trailblazer program uh, under the Moon to Mars Initiative. They're going to design early stage prototypes, prototypes of semi-autonomous rovers. Uh, and these are rovers that will collect lunar soil from the moon and deliver it to a NASA payload, which will then attempt to extract oxygen from the sample. As we all know, uh, in situ resource utilization is a very important part of deep space exploration because it's very expensive to get resources to space. So if we want to explore further, uh, we're going to have to be able to utilize what is in the places that we are exploring or living or working in. Uh, and then finally, just to wrap up this segment with just a conversation with all of you, because I'm sure you'll have thoughts on this, is that um, you may have all heard of the AUKUS agreement. Most of the AUKUS agreement, which is a trilateral security cooperation agreement between Australia, the United States, and the UK, has been focused on the $386 billion price tag for nuclear submarines. But a lot of people are now starting to turn the attention to pillar two of that agreement, which is... Uh, advancing technological cooperation and advancing security co cooperation. And one of the ways that uh, that advancement is happening is um, space cooperation and what we're doing on space. Um, so the security technology agreement could be used to bolster the resilience of space-based uh, assets. Um, it can increase mutual access to critical technologies and also the reconstitution of space-based assets um, that could be required in the wake of an international security crisis. So just going to open up my last few minutes for my segment here to the floor and um, see if any of you have been following that or have any thoughts on sort of that security pack, um, pack that is happening between these three space powers. Hey, Kat, under uh, the current conditions right now, uh, considering the fact that uh, you know, geopolitics is just off the hook. Um, in plain English, we need all the friends we can get. And it's good to have you know, Australia on board as far as uh, uh, helping secure uh, our space assets. And I think, too, it will be to our mutual advantage if uh, if that program really really continues and gets very very robust, uh, we we don't hear a lot about you know such things. And Kat, I, w I just wanted to say thanks to go to you uh, to going oh, going ahead and bring that bringing that up and and bringing it to the forefront. Yeah, I mean Australia is a very um, importantly placed partner, especially in terms of the geopolitical because of our location. Um, you know, if you look at not only the AUKUS, but the Quad and the Five Eyes Security Partnership, you know, being here um, on the other side of the world, close to um, specifically China, obviously, uh, it is an important strategic location. It's important that we continue to work together. I'm currently teaching um, a class with uh, another colleague of mine, Dr. Stacey Henderson, who is an incredible expert in international space law. 
um, and we're teaching a class called Outer Space Governance. And and one thing that has been coming up from our students, um, because you know they're watching news and they're sophisticated news consumers, is what does it mean when we're talking about outer space with sort of the ISS agreements ending with Russia, Russia aligning with China? You know, so it certainly is something that we should keep an eye on. And I imagine that we will um, bring it up on the show as we continue through season number 15. But with that, I think I'm going to hand it back to Sawyer for our next segment. So thanks so much, everyone. Thank you, Kat. It's always great to hear another perspective, especially on an agency that we don't hear much about. And yes, Australia does have their space program, and it's becoming more vital now than ever. All right, for this next bit, it's uh, one of my favorites personally. Uh, As you know, big shuttle fans here, considering that's basically how we all got this started. Uh, And uh, Mark, we're getting some new versions of those space shuttle main engines that are now used on Artemis, the RS-25s, right? Correct. And uh, I, I admit, I'm I'm a sucker for a pretty face, and I'm looking at a still image on uh, NASA Marshall Space Flight Center YouTube channel, and it's an unboxing. I don't think we've ever talked about an unboxing on Talking Space, but they unboxed the next set of RS-25 engines that'll be used on the first crewed Artemis mission. So back to... Uh, Back to the space shuttle program for just a minute. One vast group of details that I'm still amazed with is the reusability of so many of its components. The space shuttle orbiter, how many parts are part of the orbiter and the the external tank, the solid rocket boosters, same question. Even the reusability, even the SRB parachutes were retrieved, cleaned, and reused in the early 2010s at a fledgling museum that unfortunately didn't make it, they received crates of SRB parachutes. And I remember seeing 30 some crates out in the field that they had plans to, uh, to use. And sadly, you know, their, their enterprise didn't make it, but I have to correct a statement on reusability from the early days of SpaceX attempting landings of the Falcon nine rocket on barges and later on land. I thought that that type of reusability was not of value and that the loss of payload due to the added fuel necessary just to land the Falcon 9 should have been used as fuel to take payload to orbit. Looks like SpaceX was right and I was wrong. They've certainly proved that concept again and again. And as far as being wrong, not the first time. I, uh, I've got a long track record and miss assumptions and such. But back to the space shuttle, when I heard about the plan to reuse the space shuttle main engines for the Artemis program, I thought again, what a waste of valuable hardware. Well, I guess I'm wrong on that too. Consider that the last NASA launch carrying humans was in 2011, and Artemis II, I think, is currently not expected before November of 2024. So consider the possibility of developing a new rocket engine in place of the RS-25 would most likely have caused Artemis program to be delayed even more. I admit it's a good thing NASA had 16 of these RS-25 engines from the space shuttle program to utilize. So a few quick facts about the RS-25. It powered the space shuttle for over three decades. It's one of the most tested large rocket engines in history with more than 3,000 starts and more than 1 million seconds of total ground test and flight firing time. During the space shuttle program, the RS-25 underwent several design updates to improve its service life, durability, reliability, safety, 
and performance. SLS takes advantage of that technology investment and experience. Uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne is the prime contractor for these high-performance RS-25 engine that's going to be used to propel and has propelled the Space Launch System. For each flight, four RS-25 engines are mounted to the bottom of the rocket. In four seconds, they'll reach over 2 million pounds of thrust. They fire nonstop for more than eight and a half minutes to ensure the SLS reaches outer space. To do this, they used a staged combustion engine cycle that burns liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen propellants at very high pressure. They operate in temperature extremes from minus 423 degrees Fahrenheit to plus 600,000. I mean, <laughs> let me try that again, to 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit and at pressures exceeding 7,000 pounds per square inch. To fly SLS, the required power level for the RS-25 engines is 512 thousand pounds of thrust vacuum, which is 109% of its rated power level. Future evolutions will have even higher thrust capabilities. The first SLS flight engine was tested March 10th of 2016. They've conducted, uh, this is, this is a, a year or two out of date press release, but it was over 32 developmental flight engine tests for a total of 14, almost 15,000 seconds, more than five, four hours of cumulative hot fire, all on the A-1 stand at Stennis. During the shuttle program, they were routinely operated in flight at 104.5% of their original 100% rated thrust level, but they were tested up to 111%. To meet the demands of SLS flight, more power and performance would be required. Between March of 17 and April of 2019, engine test series at Stennis certified the engines to operate at normal SLS flight levels of 109%. During such tests, new and more capable engine controllers were tested for every engine. In the process, the engine was tested at thrust levels up to 113% to allow for operating safety margins. And note too, this is almost small print that you would you would pass over but they developed a new main engine controller for each engine that is different than what was part of the control electronics for the engines on the shuttle so there's a lot here that's new and they're building on on legacy hardware so in our show notes you'll see a link to that video it's only 40 seconds long and I just think those engines are pretty. Now, a couple other resources I'd like to direct you to, and you can check our show notes for this, but there's a website called Collect Space, and we've long known of this site and the incredible detail that's there. And on a uh, page that we'll have a link to, they have the Artemis One RS-25 engine flight history. One of the engines flew on, looks like three, six, nine, twelve, maybe 15 flights. Another engine flew on four, uh, including Atlantis, Columbia, Discovery, Endeavor. Another engine flew on, looks like six flights, another on three flights. So it's interesting to see that the ultimate reusability is shuttle engines. And something that I totally missed is that the Ohms engines that were part of the space shuttle, the orbital maneuvering system, those Ohms engines were actually reused and they're part of the Orion uh, orbital stage engine. And so how cool is that, 
that an engine that I wasn't even aware of being reused. And on Artemis One, the Orion main engine flew on Challenger, Atlantis, Discovery, and a whole bunch of flights on Atlantis. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal. Reusability at its best. And so uh, I'd like you to refer you to CollectSpace and also Aerojet Rocketdyne. There's a, uh, a fact sheet. Uh, the RS-25 engine is so powerful, if it were generating electricity instead of propelling rockets into space, it could power 846,591 miles of residential streetlights. That's the street long enough to go to the moon and back and then circle the Earth 15 times. I don't think that any of us can grasp the power, even seeing a shuttle launch and seeing Artemis 1 launch. I don't think any of us can grasp the power that's involved in this. And it's done under such extremes. And the fact that they made a successful flight with Artemis 1, that's that's good news for the future of the program. I agree with you, Mark. It's just, it's incredible, you know, to think. And a bit humbling to think of the legacy of these these engines, right? That they've been around longer than some of us um, who are listening and maybe some of us who are on the show, um, at least the technology. But this is the story of, of the, the United States Civil Space Program is that these programs are often interconnected in ways that we don't realize. And a lot of that is because of budget constraints. We just can't um, afford to constantly make completely new technology. So we have to scaffold new programs on top of existing programs. Um, so it's really it's really quite exciting for me as someone who sort of studies the the policy side of this to see, you know, the practical outworking of programs that are intentionally scaffolded within the, pro- the policy process. Yeah. And again, people talk about, oh, SLS isn't reusable, things like that. Well, yeah, we have leftover stuff from shuttle hardware. So I'm glad to see it getting used all of the engines, as you mentioned. And Mark, real quick. I'm glad you mentioned that you know these these engines are are you know the, the development cost would have been astronomical and would have set the entire Artemis back Artemis program back like I don't know years perhaps me even a decade it takes a very long time to develop a new engine and the costs again are just just staggering and indeed, the uh, as you mentioned, the uh, orbital maneuvering system engine on the uh, service module of the Orion spacecraft was indeed shuttle involved. And I think too, marrying the ESA service module to an American engine is is also kind of cool. Yeah, I'll mention one last thing as we wrap this up. There's also a development program for new. RS-25 engines, and I think that they are uh, being worked, and they will provide Artemis liftoff and flight capability from Artemis 5 on. So this isn't the end of the program. That was a concern that I had. There's more ahead. Yeah, I believe now they're on the RS-25's E, and we'll see more letters in the alphabet. All right, continuing along now, this one, I'm going to pass it over to Gene for a mission to Venus that has its moment of truth. Yeah, so when was the, tell me when was the last time, last mission to Venus that NASA had? To put this into perspective, Ronald Reagan was president of the United States. That was 1989. 
the Magellan mission, uh, which I believe launched from the cargo bay of the space shuttle Atlantis, uh, went to Venus and studied the planet and did an entire topography and did a fairly good job. But we haven't been back to Venus in a very long time. And uh, back in 2021, there was going to be another mission that was assigned uh, from the Discovery series of, uh, of missions that NASA has in the Science Mission Directorate. The mission was, is called Veritas, and it is also to go ahead and study uh, the Venus surface and, and try to get more developed uh, photography of, of, of the planet, and also to try to learn more about its surface and its comings and goings. And the science community, since this was going to be the very first mission to Venus, was extraordinarily excited about it. Well, uh, this month, uh, it appeared that, uh, well, the uh, launch date, which was going to be 2027 in December, has been pushed back to 2031. And a lot of the community, including... Uh, a lot of the policymakers, indeed, I sat in on a on a presentation uh, with the Planetary Society's uh, Casey Dyer, uh, who basically surmised that this is essentially a soft cancellation of the mission. So its future is in a little doubt in a lot, lot of areas. Uh, we don't know if this mission is even, even going to fly, uh, which has gotten the scientific community in up in arms completely. Uh, the, and again, the science community is just simply not happy. Uh, Mark Sykes of the Planetary Science Institute is calling for a congressional intervention, saying that Congress should, quote, intervene in the management of the NASA Planetary Science Division. And I believe we'll have his entire, uh, uh, a link to his entire uh, essay on the, in the show notes. Uh, basically saying that, that Congress needs to essentially investigate the actions of, S of the Science Mission Directorate, Directorate and provide funding and direction you know, from this administration so that the public can get the science return on their tax dollars in these missions instead of chaos. Congress needs to decide, and this is really strong here, Congress needs to decide whether NASA is a science agency or a performing arts agency. NASA does not consider itself to be a science agency, and this may be part of the problem. Um, I'm not too sure that that is the case, but uh, and, and his criticize his criticism too, as far as being a performing arts deal, is you know basically looking at at the way the National Endowment of the Arts was was kind of was kind of funded. Um, the uh, uh, the Associated uh, Deputy PI of Veritas, uh, Jenny Witten writes the following, and essentially a call to action. The Veritas team needs your help. NASA selected Veritas in June 2021 and then put the mission on hold this past November, despite us being on time and on budget. Now we are scheduled to launch no earlier than 2031. To maintain our schedule as much as possible, we are working to petition Congress and stipulate a 2029 launch date for Veritas. And she has a, a link to a, to a petition here to, to sign if you agree with, with her reasoning. 
She goes on to say, we realize that there are many that are unable to participate in this petition given your affiliations, but please share this with any U.S. friends and or family that you may have who are able to do so. And she ends it basically by saying, note, even civil servants in the United States have the right to engage in free speech and solicit Congress and private individuals. So essentially, she's trying to save, save her mission. Now, on March 23rd, Lori Glaze, who is the, uh, the director of planetary science at NASA, basically gave the following explanation as to what happened with Veritas. She, uh, she said that NASA has to stay within bounds um, of the money that it's granted and but budgets are tight and sometimes things happen. She called the delay in Veritas gut-wrenching and she says it, it remains that way. Quote, I know there are a lot concerned a lot of concern within the community about the future of Veritas and I want everyone to know that we put an enormous amount of thought into the decision and it was not made lightly. She cited the COVID-related costs, which were absorbed by SMD, which were in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, she, and because of absorbing that, they were able to keep a few missions on track. And she cited uh, Mars 2020, Lucy, DART, and, and a few others. She also said they've been increase, increasing inflationary pressures all the way around. And she cites that again, Veritas was selected late in 2021. The appropriation turned out to be $80 million less than what was expected. So that had to be absorbed. The bo bottom line, she said, the budget resilience in SMD is gone as a result, result of all of these impacts. There aren't a lot of budgetary reserves to turn to. The mission was delayed very early in its formulation phase. Um, and it, they're looking at an IRB report at at, uh, or an independent review board report at, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, to try to go ahead and, and see what they need to do and need to clean up a little better and try to clean up their procedures a little better. And they're hoping that JPL will take all of those recommendations to heart. There's no reason why they shouldn't. But uh, um, she's also indicating that there is an opportunity in the fiscal year 25 budget to lay down the restart of the mission. Funding for Veritas was allocated to other activities in the SMD portfolio, but it was not allocated to the Mars sample return mission, which apparently is getting to be the thing that ate everybody's homework at the science mission directorate. But Lori Glaze basically insisted that the budget, the money from Veritas did not go there. It just went through scattered areas throughout the science mission directorate's portfolio. Um, you know, Jane, the, um, yes. if you don't mind, I was just going to say one thing that um, that strikes me about, about this is that it can be a double-edged sword asking Congress to get involved in these sort of me measures, especially considering the current Congress that we have um, is, at least in the House, is none too keen on increasing government spending. Um, so if you ask Congress to get involved on determining what the agency should be, um, that might be a decision that can be significantly regretted. Now, there are times when Congress does show its approval and has given NASA more money than it's asked for, which is, you know, the only the only time that that uh, Congress does something generally that people like is when they give more money to certain programs. Um, but generally, when you when you get uh, the bureaucracy involved in this and the bureaucracy of the of you know sort of Congress, that can 
you know, that can lead to outcomes that could actually end up being more detrimental um, to the programs than if you had just left it alone. I'm smiling right now. I wish you could see it because you read my mind. That's exactly what I was about to say. I know. I just, if it was me and science was like at the heart of what I loved and what NASA does, and I'm the science mission directorate, I wouldn't be going to a, um, a house that has a lot of anti-science and anti-government spending members and asking them to save my science mission to Venus because I can already hear in my head the things that certain members, vocal members of Congress that have had some outsized effects on the agenda in Congress would say. So that's just that's just not the the tact I would take to saving my mission. It's it's kind of funny. The other thing too I'll mention is that we all know that pretty much budgets are dead on arrival in Congress. And a lot of things have happened in the past that have said, okay, you know, this program was, was, was killed. This program was killed. We all th- thought the, um, the STEM program within NASA was, was pretty much zeroed out and all of that returned. So there's still a possibility that this may not be over yet. But uh, indeed, there are a lot of people within Congress right now that want to go ahead and wield the cost-cutting uh, acts, and uh, I'm not too sure how receptive uh, that plot is going to be to a lot of a lot of folks. You're absolutely correct. What and also th- something interesting that you mentioned about you know the whole thing with the Mars sample return mission. I remember I was at a launch recently when they unveiled the first planned budget that included all the funding for it and everyone was losing their minds of how great it is how exciting it is that they're getting all the full funding for the sample return mission which i agree is absolutely amazing it's going to be hugely beneficial especially for further exploration but it really does it really is worth pointing out that hey there are other missions too that need the funding or that aren't getting enough funding well i think yeah, too, we can't uh, put all of our eggs into the mars basket because you know if you look at if we ever are going to live and work in other places, Mars might not be the best place to live and work. There's a lot of people who claim that, you know, we should be looking at the atmosphere of Venus, right? So we just, I I think it's important, like Mars is big and flashy and everybody loves it, but Mars isn't the only thing in the solar system. And it's certainly not the only mission of scientific value. I think, too, and somebody correct me on this, I think, too, that uh, MSR was something that was uh, asked for in the last decadal survey. And I think they are still trying to you know, catch up. It's sort of I, I'll mention something, too. There's there's also a uh, in this current decadal survey, there is a planetary mission uh, proposed to Uranus. And it's going to be like a Cassini-type mission, and the uh, National Academy said, we want this mission like yesterday. And so far, I don't see any, any, any NASA even moving on that. The other funny thing, too, with this is that the announcement of the cancellation of Veritas comes on the heels of the discovery of a volcanic activity on the surface of Venus, which is... The first, I I believe this is only the second active volcano that they've found in the universe. I mean, in in the solar system. Uh, I know there's one one on Io. I know there's there are active volcanoes here on Earth, but this is the first confirmed, the second confirmed 
volcano uh, in the solar system and the first confirmed on Venus. And the wild part of how that, that was found out was uh, a gentleman who, who discovered it was sitting there just, you know, during these Zoom meetings, just kind of daydreaming. Um, and he was looking at old Magellan photos and was just, you know, him being a trained geologist kind of put two and two together, looking at all these old photographs and said, hey, look what I found. And, you know, so, but we don't have an asset uh, in and around the planet to go ahead and examine this. It's going to be interesting. Let's hope that eventually gets its funding and we can see more missions to Venus. Grab your elsewhere. Pop- yeah, grab your popcorn, Sawyer. This is going to get uh, this is going to get interesting. Indeed. And that brings us to the conclusion of this episode. Yes, it's a little bit shorter. It's a new format. Let us know what you guys think. You can tweet at us, email us, whatever you think. Let us know your thoughts on this uh, new format. And uh, as we wrap things up, I am going to thank those who joined us. And I'm going to thank you first, Gene, besides the fact this is your show. I know you have a special dedication. Yeah, thanks, Sawyer. Um, I want to dedicate the this final, well, the final, the uh, the very first episode uh, in a very long time uh, for Talking Space to a, a very dear friend of mine who I, I lost uh, back in, uh, in just a few weeks ago in March. Um, Helen Smith um, was the mom to my best friend, Kyle Smith, Smith Scoltetti. And uh, uh, she was, uh, Helen Smith was just a remarkable woman. Um, she was always inquisitive. She was always interesting. She gave you uh, thought-provoking questions that would honest to God make you think. I mean, all right, I'm going to be showing my age here, but uh, I remember there were there were nights where um, me and my friend Kyle would be watching television, and of course, it was the first run of the television series Cosmos. And uh, we would have extraordinary long, extraordinarily long conversations there afterward about what we saw and about what was, what uh, Dr. Sagan challenged us to, to think. And any conversation with Helen Smith always made you think she, she really brought that out of, out of you. She was, she was an absolute genius. Um, she recently passed away at a, at a ripe old age and, uh, it was a life well lived. And uh, um, I just wanted to say on, you know, on, on, <laughs> on some platform, um, thank you, Helen Smith, not only for enriching my life, but bringing one of my best friends into the world. So Kyle Smith, too, I'm, I'm very sad to, uh, to, uh, to hear this just horrible news. And I wish you and your family well. Thank you very much for sharing that. And yes, this episode with that special dedication for sure. Thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Thank you all. And thank you, Gene, for sharing that. It's good to hear about good people out there that have done so many good things for so long. I should hope we could all measure to that standard at some point. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. And thank you for joining us, Kat Robinson. Always a pleasure to be here and just echoing the sentiments. It's always good to be able to remember the people who have impacted our lives so positively. Exactly. And uh, again, want to thank you for listening and rejoining us. And uh, 
we are going to try out this new format and hopefully it works and hopefully that means we get to bring you more episodes so until that next one here's one thing that hasn't changed have a great day night evening or whatever it may be where you are